The past two years have been a wild ride for trucking companies, and that's saying a lot as the trucking industry was pretty wild to begin with. But over those past two years, we've seen nothing short of unprecedented in its scope and impact. So now the industry is returning to a tenuous state of normalcy, which are some things to look out on the horizon. Well, looking out on that horizon, we're going to find out and ask some folks on this episode of Loaded and Rolling. Welcome to Loaded and Rolling. I'm your host, Thomas Wasson. Now, the post-pandemic world of trucking is in an odd place. Scores of new carriers joined a market lured by the hopes and dreams of record spot market rates. Like the California gold rush, carriers moved back to the west to cover the congested ports of LA and Long Beach that swelled with coffee tables, television sets, and homebrew kombucha kits that kept the sanity for many remote workers. But like the boom-bust cycle of a gold rush era town, the freight market and easing of lockdowns prompted a months-long recession in the tides of freight. For many carriers who joined at high tide, they were ill-equipped for an unforgiving industry and a return to the dreaded term, seasonality. But all is not doom and gloom. From the ashes of those carriers who didn't weather the storm rises a new dawn for those who stuck around. We have things across the horizon like infrastructure bills, truck parking and restroom mandates, and cleaner and more efficient units maybe just around this corner. So joining us to talk about this, of course, is going to be our next guest, and uh, it's going to be Carl Philhauer, Vice President of Sales and Operations at Circle Logistics. A little bit of background, he's been in the industry since 1983 in the logistics game and has worked in sales and operations for most of his career. He also started his own brokerage in 1987, built a 3PL division from scratch at Coke Logistics in 99, and has been at Circle Logistics since 2018. Carl, welcome, sir. Thank you. Super excited to have you on and diving right in, especially given your experiences. Uh, you know, coming from the age of deregulation, what are some of the biggest things you're seeing now as we're starting to have conversations about what trucking looks like compared to your experiences in the past? Well, you, you kind of mentioned it in your intro. We're starting to see more seasonality, you know, where we had a, a pretty good run for a two to three year period. Uh, back in 17, 18, 19, uh, whether it's from COVID or just market uh, changes, we're starting to see the typical seasonality that we saw years and years ago with uh, a bigger retail season in the fall and manufacturing in some cases shutting down in the summer, partly for the summer. Um, so we're, we're seeing that kind of, kind of uh, reemerge. And one of the cool things, speaking of the shutdowns, was the impact on equipment. Not cool if you're trying to buy it, but fascinating if you're observing like how it's working. Uh, you know, talking about the chassis shortage and microchip shortages and all these shortages, uh, were there any ob observations you had on class eights that, uh, you know, what are we kind of looking at moving forward? Is it getting better or are we still kind of stuck in the dark ages? Um, I think it's going to be getting better. The, the chip shortage, uh, we're still suffering some effects from the chip shortage, but we're coming out of that. And I think as we get deeper into 2023, we're going to see that as not as much of an influence as what we've seen in the past. Uh, Class A truck orders uh, last year were down a little bit, 
but we saw a huge surge in September uh, with orders, and I believe there is enough of a surge to where most manufacturers are poised to be fairly busy all the way through the mid part of this year. So although there there was uh, a slight downfall, uh, I don't think it's going to be long term. I think we're going to come out of it. Class eight orders will probably level off for this year, uh, but as as always it's, as it's always been in the past. Carriers have to flip their equipment. They, they have to get new tractors every two to four years, and there's a constant recycling of that going on. I feel like a big conversation with that. We're going to see, you know, large carriers are going to be re-upping on the ages. They're going to try to lower that average age for the total tractor count. And one of the things I'm curious about is some folks are saying, well, there may be a glut of used trucks that may crash the prices. And others are saying that it may be a more orderly transition. I, I kind of wonder if this is going to be something where, as we're seeing everybody finally purchase these vehicles, if you can get a good deal, or if there's a concern that folks who have used vehicles are going to get worse of a deal if they try to sell. Uh, I, I think there will be situations where if you own a truck, especially if you're an owner-operator or a smaller fleet, your resale value is going to go down, just like it would in, in the used car market. Um, however, uh, the recycling of vehicles, I think, is just going to continue. Larger companies always have to be flipping their equipment to bring in new technology and, and better and more efficient vehicles. At the same time, some of them will just push the, the, uh, the past fleet or the, the fleet that they're looking to flip into either a brokered situation where they're being sold in bulk or they might have their own selling mechanisms in place to get rid of those equipment. There's always going to be a market for used truck equipment because most people, when they join the industry as owner-operators or small fleet operators, they can't afford some of the, the, the newest equipment out there. So the used market trucking, well, I think will sustain itself for the most part. Um, if you're smaller and you've got a piece of equipment that's, we'll say, four to eight or more years older, you will get less from a trade-in value. Uh, but there's always ways to repurpose equipment. So I, I don't see it as being a big hurdle in the future uh, in regard to the value of used equipment. Uh, but I do see uh, new equipment coming on board this year for sure. It's going to be exciting times. I feel like the folks who are doing like leasing, your Penske's, your riders, folks who probably also buy in bulk on the used market and, and flip it. There, there may be opportunities. I remember working at a large asset fleet. You'd use them as lease purchase programs and you sell. So you'd sell them to the driver after you discounted them. So, you know, looking forward, uh, especially with the projections and stuff, we've heard about class eight tractors. Do you have any thoughts on trailers, which is surprisingly interesting because the materials and the labor, it feels a little bit different in terms of trailer orders and tractor orders. Any thoughts on that? Um, nothing too specific. You know, we saw a huge trailer shortage uh, midway through COVID and going into last year. You couldn't find a trailer uh, if, if you needed one, if you need to add trailers to your fleet. So uh, not unlike the chassis market, there, there's a backlog for ordering new trailers and getting that delivery date in a timely fashion. Um, I don't see that changing until the end of this year. There's still a lot of companies that are using trailers, the older trailers that are pulled out of the road fleets for storage. And we still have a warehouse shortage, especially on the West Coast. So it's going to take us, I'm going to say 12 to 18 months to really get caught up with that. There will always be a, a need for newer trailers, just like there is for newer tractors. 
Uh, it's going to be a matter of uh, availability when it comes to uh, the building or the manufacturing of those trailers and then raw materials as well. So uh, the trailer situation, I, I don't see it to necessarily mimicking the tractor situation. There will be a need. I don't think the trailer situation is as bad as the chassis situation. True. The chassis situation was was pretty wild to begin with. I wanted to switch gears a little bit because the legislation front, you normally hear about as a service and ELDs, but a surprising one that we've been talking about has been parking and restroom access. From your experience being, you know, your, your decades of experience in this industry, was this ever something that was a problem or is it more of something we finally have more media attention to try and solve it? Uh, I think it's a bigger problem today than it has been in the past. Uh, there was a time where it was very rarely discussed. The, uh, the, the things that weigh into that, though, are different today than they were 20 or 30 years ago. With fuel cost and the cost of running a piece of equipment down the road being as high as it is today, most drivers and most companies are looking for parking in an area that's going to be very close to the origin or the destination point of a particular trip. The last thing carriers want to do, especially the smaller carriers, is drive many, many miles out of route just to find a truck stop. Uh, and every city is a little bit different. You know, if you look at the larger metro areas, there is not really good uh, parking and good facilities in a downtown area. The cost of the real estate is just too high. So you, you have to get stop areas or truck stops and or parking areas that make sense on all different uh, entry points to a big city. That way drivers aren't driving all the way through the city to get to a truck stop on the other side of the city. So there needs to be some thought put into that. I know that uh, the, the Fed has really put some money aside for uh, rebuilding that kind of infrastructure. I believe it's being managed really, those, those funds are coming from the Fed, but the states are each managing uh, their bucket of funds for that on their own. Um, I can see an expansion of truck stops as well as an expansion of, of uh, way stations, not way stations, but uh, wayside uh, stopping. So uh, kind of an entry point to a state would be. That's what blows my mind. I remember Southern California, in my opinion, is the one of the worst examples of truck parking right in the middle of Ontario, in the middle of you know the whole Californian inland empire. There's like two truck stops, a TA and a Petro right next to each other. There's like 200 spots for all of LA. And then there's random mom and pops. And there's one in Hesperia to the north. And it just feels to me like, imagine you're, you're a large city with millions of people that was designed for cars like Los Angeles, but all you can really afford is like a handful of truck stops. Uh, you know, where, where the heck do these folks park? Like, there's a great opportunity, especially with autonomous trucks. Do you think that maybe we'll see some states decide to get a little more forward thinking and maybe have a state-owned stop so that way you can also charge the, the drivers of the autonomous tractors to use it and switch loads? Uh, I guess there's the potential of that. I, I think most taxpayers in most states would say they don't want to supplement the trucking industry. So that would be some tough legislation to pass. Uh, there needs to be a balance uh, between the government uh, overseeing that and even potentially some uh, private industry. There, there's plenty of companies that do have space available for truck stopping. And, and my guess is going forward, uh, we're, we're going to see some, uh, some new technology that might be out there in the form of an application that could manage available truck 
parking, whether it's private or whether it's public. Uh, and and there probably be fees along with that. And I know if I was driving a truck and I was going into LA and I could find a place to park uh, for eight to 10 hours during my downtime and it cost me 40 bucks, I would probably be willing to pay that versus going way out of route just to find a place and then having to fight traffic the next day to get into my delivery or, or, or my pickup. So I, I think there needs to be a combination of, of better technology to really reserve trucking spots for truckers, as well as space. And that space doesn't necessarily have to be public space. It could be private space that people have already and they wanna sign up to use that space for trucking and, and there's revenue tied to it. And thinking about, speaking on the legislation front, um, the bathroom mandates. Well, I always wondered if that was something where, because I used to be a broker, we'd hear problems where some of our shippers were having trouble. And sometimes as a large carrier, it's preload dropping hooks. So you didn't really hear too much complaining, but as a small carrier, you'd find out real quick which places wouldn't even let you use the restroom. I wonder if that's, uh, from your experience, are we talking about a, a recent kind of style phenomenon, or is this like a pandemic-related one where when we had the lockdowns, people just wouldn't let them in? Yeah, well, I think it has to do with the pandemic as well as just security. Our our public uh, has gotten to the point now where we don't trust anybody. I mean, if you were in sales and you tried to make a sales call 30 years ago, you could park your car in one spot in an industrial park and knock on doors and actually see people. Today, you can't even get in to see a receptionist. Most of the selling in our industry is done by the phone, uh, Zoom meetings, and and most big shippers aren't really willing to see you until you are a vendor and you've got a relationship going with them. You have to prove yourself first, but to get in the door looks different than it did years ago. Uh, and, and that's a product of a number of things. It, it, the pandemic certainly did not help, but a lot of it just has to do with technology and a different way we communicate with one another. It feels like from a brokerage standpoint as well, there's an opportunity because now that the gatekeeping's so high, if you have the established brand name, you have the technology, and almost like you have a competing edge, like I couldn't just go to a Home Depot RDC and say, hey, can I talk to your shipping person? Right, absolutely. So there, there's, there's a need for that third party in there. What that's gonna look like going forward, I don't know. A lot of brokers are already trying to process what it would take to develop a network of good parking and or facilities that truckers could use as well as other things. So um, I, I think it will be a 3PL stepping in at some point in really advancing the technology around, we'll say parking, uh, just because there needs to be some consistency. And there are so many small mom and pop carriers that they don't even have the bandwidth and in, in the wherewithal to hire salespeople, which obviously they relies, rely on the 3PLs for that. I feel like that is a hidden opportunity. I spoke with somebody, I came from a startup out of Austin, and one of the cool wild ideas was uh, if, you, if you worked for the company, you'd have your own company sponsored. You know, like a YMCA is a private membership for gyms and stuff. Well, the trucking companies or somebody would come in and have your own specific ones. I feel like as a broker, there's an opportunity, but it's very capitally intensive. Like, hey, you run loads with me in these certain areas. I'm going to give you the special VIP. I can set you up here. I can make a drop trailer pool or have your own specific one for these mom and pops that don't have access. Is that kind of what we're thinking of? Or maybe like how uh, large shipping lines will build out and partner up with a port to help expand? It's kind of like a, a, a the third party is actually helping expand capacity in exchange for access? Uh, it, it could be. I, I don't think it'll get 
get that far. Uh, we're not going to go that far down the rabbit hole. I think added services from a 3PL definitely would uh, would enter to any any 3PL would entertain the ability of potentially being able to get more carriers on board. Most of the small carriers and even the medium-sized carriers, though, at the end of the day, I don't believe they're interested in being part of a consortium as much as what are they making per load in on a particular load. There's so much volatility still in that market, um, and that's really the primary focus of a guy who owns his own truck or even a small to medium-sized carrier. What are we making from a revenue per mile, and is the truck producing enough to pay for itself? I like that point. And uh, kind of looking at ELD usage, uh, the mandate has been around since uh, 15, 16. I know 18 is when it really got into full swing. Large carriers had ELD since the early 2000s. I worked at US Express, so they were, you know, pioneering some of that stuff. But looking at the future of it, now we have it in full effect. Uh, what are some of your early thoughts? Do you think that it's going to get, uh, we're going to see more restrictions and forms uh, from uh, legislation? Or you think that some folks may ease up a little bit and make it friendlier for the driver? Um, I hope, I certainly hope we don't see more restrictions. Um, and, and really, when you're talking ELDs versus the old paper logging methodology, uh, not much has changed. It, you have to look deeper into that and look at the hours of service rules. I think we could do some things with hours of service that might help drivers and carriers uh, not only be more profitable, but be more efficient with their time. The, D, the ELD mandate and what's going on with ELDs is not going to reverse itself. Uh, you know, if you're a small carrier and you've got an ELD and it stops working, you're still expected to have your drivers use paper logs. So if there's an inspection, they can prove what they've been doing. Uh, but with the onslaught of ELDs and the number of people joining that marketplace, I can see the government regulating exactly what they require for somebody offering an ELD or that type of technology. I don't see us going backwards. We've got them now. We will never be in an environment without them. And working with a 3PL, is that kind of a, providing opportunities to work with either the carrier's ELD or the manufacturer, is that something where it's still a challenge? I remember before the pandemic, even signing people up for Project 44 felt like I was picking teeth. But over the past few years, have you seen more folks adopting visibility from the carrier side or willing to share this data? Uh, we have, at, at Circle, we have for sure. And obviously, we use ELD integration as well as, as tools like MacroPoint. And, and we've seen the participation of our carriers and drivers rise, uh, which tells me that they're becoming, in general, they're becoming more comfortable with it and more trusting of this technology. Uh, there was a time when a typical truck driver didn't want anybody to know where they were or what they were doing. Uh, and I think those days are mostly gone. Obviously, there's new people entering the market all the time. But I think the acceptance of both ELDs and any kind of tracking via cell phone or whatever is, is on the rise. And I think we're in a good spe space with it. There's still some, uh, some improvement that could be uh, seen, but, but we're having good success at Circle. That's why I was curious. One of my theories was always the theory of shippers usually drive innovation, not the carriers. Because if a shipper, let's say I'm a Walmart and I have my transportation spend, I need all my carriers and 3PLs to use this. And I always wondered from your experience as well, uh, being in the game for so long, have you normally felt like a lot of it came from shippers, brokers, or carriers in terms of like a lot of the innovations we're seeing? Um, I, I think a lot of it 
the innovation came from inside the industry. The drive to create innovation did come from the shippers. At, at the end of the day, they're paying for the freight. Uh, one way or another, and uh, they've all most most in most industries they've always looked to reduce costs. So uh, the approach of we need to continue to build efficiencies and reduce costs that's always been there. That'll always be there. That doesn't necessarily mean that the shipper themselves or their particular uh, industry is going to drive the change within the trucking industry. That's going to be done by people who think that there's a way to make a buck on either new technology or a new approach to uh, whatever's needed by the shippers. You, know, you go all the way back into the, the 60s and the 70s, EDI was talked about very frequently. And by deregulation, by the time deregulation hit in the 80s, there was a lot of major shippers that were saying, you have to provide EDI. And out of that, came a standardization of what EDI would look like and the different types of EDI code there would be. Uh, and, and I think uh, over time, our advancement with technology has taken us to the next level. So a lot of shippers now don't look at for EDI, but they need an API or some sort of data interchange that makes sense and is easy to manage. Um, so again, I'll go back to your original question. I don't think it's necessarily driven, the, the innovation is not driven by uh, people outside of the transportation industry, but the need is driven by them in that they want efficiencies and they want better visibility. The, what's, what's driving it though is really coming from inside the transportation industry. That's what I've noticed is that I'll, I talk to a lot of folks who are visibility platforms or TMS platforms, and it's fascinating to see it explode over these past few years. And, and uh, every other conversation, either a routing guide or something, you know, when you're trying to make sense of it all, especially even being at Circle, do you ever decide, like, should I build my own or do you have to go out and look at and say, should I, can I buy my own? Is that ever a challenge as a broker? Because I know I feel like when brokers reach a certain level, you can no longer use like the, uh, the TMSs you can get from like that and stuff. I can't remember what it's called, but um, uh, that style. How, how, is, uh, how do you figure out this technology moving forward? Is it something you want to prioritize? You just kind of test it as you go? Um, well, you, you have to leave your options open, obviously. However, I'll, I'll say this. There, there's a ton of different TMSs out there on the market. Most of them are accessible through some sort of an internet portal. They don't all do the same thing. So there's TMSs that most shippers are going to want to migrate towards because it helps them more effectively manage their inbound and outbound shipments or manage that day-to-day -day activity. The, the key is, do all of these different systems talk to one another? And, and that's where we've had good success. We've got a lot of different applications that we use, and we've been able to tie them in with our TMS so that from the electronic data interchange standpoint, our systems are all talking to one another with very little human interaction. And, and I think that's where, where things, uh, if you're gonna be successful in our industry, especially as a 3PL, you have to figure out a way to do that. If you spend enough money with a TMS producer, or somebody who's designed the particular application, you can generally have some of your own code written so you can make it your own, even though it's an off-the-shelf product. Um, and depending on the size of the user, 
uh, it's going to look different for everybody. You know, a, a small guy is not going to be able to afford anything that they can't pay for on a transactional basis. A larger company that has a lot of revenue and a lot of moving parts, they may want to build something proprietary or at least tweak whatever they're buying off the shelf so that it's specific to their needs. And looking forward, got about a minute left, uh, practical actions, strategies moving forward for 2022, whether you're a broker or a carrier, is it still the same or do you use a different kind of way to handle this normalization? Um, I, I think it's still the same, but you have to spend a lot of uh, time and put a lot of attention into the detail. Uh, obviously, no matter what industry you're in, you got to manage your labor, you got to manage uh, manufacturing costs. If you're a manufacturer, you got to manage all of the moving parts that you can potentially manage and build efficiencies from within. Uh, so that approach, I don't think will ever change it from a general business approach standpoint. Um, with trucking, we're going to see the same thing this upcoming year that we've seen on every cycle as the industry cycles and in, in, in churns in that there's going to be small carriers that are going out of business. There's yeah. going to be medium-sized carriers that are bringing on that capacity. Uh, and, and there's just a constant churning going on. It, it looks the same. I, I can tell you in my 30-some year career, the cycles are the same. They look the same. They're just coming faster. I like uh, it. The implication Sorry, I'm going to cut you off. The, bo the boss people will cut us off in 10 seconds. So we're coming in hot. Carl, thank you so much for coming on. Love to have you on again. We'll have probably solved on Sirius. Uh, you can obviously catch us them more at circlelogistics.com. That's it for today, though. Catch us next Tuesday, 1 p.m. We'll do it live.